Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This is a podcast that seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're not new to the podcast and you're finding it enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review or a plug on social media. Our guest today is Yasuyuki Yoshida, a professor of international law at Takaoka University Faculty of Law in Toyama, Japan. Professor Yoshida is also a retired naval captain of the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, or JMSDF. And during his time in the MSDF, he served as naval attaché in the Japanese embassy in Bahrain. He served in the operational staff in Maritime Forces headquarters. And he retired as deputy legal affairs general and legal advisor to the chief of the joint staff. In his academic career, he has focused on international law and particularly operational maritime law and the law of the sea, as well as jus ad bellum. He and I share a normal matter in that we both did graduate work at Osaka University once upon a time, though not at the same time. In today's episode, Yasuyuki and I discuss the Japanese position on a number of jus ad bellum issues, and in particular how recent government decisions regarding the constitution of Japan may have changed or affected Japan's posture on jus ad bellum issues. In particular, the conditions under which Japan could and would use force, whether it might assist the defense of Taiwan, for example, how it views claims that the U.S. could engage in preemptive strikes against North Korea on the pretext of defending Japan, and a number of other really interesting issues with some quite surprising conclusions. But before getting to the conversation, I think it would be helpful for me to provide some background, as I'm not sure that many listeners will know very much about the Japanese context or why it might matter very much. To begin, the Japanese constitution has a provision that creates one of the most explicit relationships between constitutional law and use ad bellum among the world's constitutions. Article 9 of the Constitution of Japan, the so-called peace provision or war renouncing provision, does indeed, in its first paragraph, renounce war and the threat or use of force for the purposes of settling international disputes. And as well, in a second paragraph, prohibits Japan from maintaining armed forces or other war potential. It was drafted by a group of young Americans and MacArthur's staff in 1946, and the language of paragraph one was drawn directly from the Kellogg-Briand Pact and Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, which was just then being concluded at the time. The provision was interpreted in Japan in 1955 and has been understood for the last 60 years as permitting individual self-defense but renouncing any other use of force, including collective self-defense or collective security operations authorized by the UN Security Council. Indeed, the provision was embraced by the Japanese people and helped foster a new national identity grounded in pacifism. The governing party in Japan has tried at various junctures to amend the provision, but failed. But in 2014, the government sought to reinterpret Article 9 so as to relax the constraints largely due to perceived changes in the strategic conditions in the Asia-Pacific region. The so-called reinterpretation, which was nothing more than a government fiat, purported to allow Japan to engage in collective self-defense, to support allies engaged in hostilities, 
and even to use force in individual self-defense on the basis of rather vague conditions. The move led to massive protests in Japan, with tens of thousands of protesters taking to the streets in Tokyo, Osaka, and many other cities around the country. It was panned by constitutional experts as being invalid and illegitimate, and raised lots of questions about what it meant for Japan's posture on various use ad bellum issues. So that's the background for our conversation. And I will confess that even though I've been studying these issues surrounding Japan's Article 9 and Japan's use ad bellum posture for some time, there were some real surprises for me here, and I think for Yoshida-sensei as well. And what is more, there are surprises that provide some insight and shed some light on why there have been some misunderstandings about the so-called reinterpretation. As well, there are some really very interesting commentary on Japan's position on a number of the standard controversies in the doctrine of self-defense, including the unwilling or unable doctrine, anticipatory self-defense, the gap between armed attack and use of force, and so on. And so with that, I bring you Professor Yasuyuki Yoshida. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Well, thank you for having me. The feeling is mutual. Well, as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking my guests to the podcast to share something about themselves that may not be in their biography or even something that maybe your colleagues uh, at your home school don't know about. I, myself, I used to play rugby when wow. I was young. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Then, then, but after I finished playing rugby, I tried to be a referee. So currently, still, I am an officially certified referee by Kanagawa Union. Oh, wow. Interesting. So the primary focus of our discussion is going to be Japan's approach to and its position on key aspects of the use ad bellum regime. Yes. But of course, it's impossible to fully understand Japan's posture on use ad bellum without understanding something about Article 9 of the Japanese mm -hmm. Constitution, the so-called mm -hmm. war-renouncing provision of Japan's Constitution. And yes. even more importantly, the recent so-called reinterpretation of that provision. Yeah, yeah. So I've explained a little bit about Article 9 in the introduction, but I thought that we should start with having you tell us a little bit about Article 9 and particularly its relationship with international law. Okay. So Article 9 provides that aspiring sincerely to international peace based upon justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of setting international dispute. This is a paragraph one. Right. And paragraph one is really the one that relates most to use ad bellum. So that's right. And perhaps you could tell us how, at least up until 2014, how was Article 9, Paragraph 1, you know, the renunciation of war and the use of force, how was it interpreted by the Japanese government? As far as I understand, the Japanese government recognized that uh, Japan, as a sovereign nation, we have an inherent right of belligerency, but as a foreign policy or a Japanese domestic uh, legislation, we do not exercise such inherent rights of the belligerency. That's what, what they understand, basically. So as I understand it, when you say that Japan had the inherent right of self-defense, that is as a matter of international law, mm -hmm. uh, but that as a matter of constitutional law, Article yes. 9, Paragraph 1 was understood to mean that Japan had a right of individual self-defense, 
but it renounced the right of collective self-defense and any right to engage in collective security operations authorized by the UN Security Council. Is that, do I have that correctly? Sure, that's right. And then that understanding was in place from about 1955 all the way up to 2014. How did that interpretation of Article 9 of the Constitution affect Japanese foreign policy? Uh, well, I am not a politician, and I have never worked at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but I am a Navy guy. The only experience in my government assignment was the Ministry of Defense. But I understand that uh, the, the basic Japanese foreign policy, especially, especially toward the United States, has not been changed. But before 2014, they, they, especially the, the Ministry of Defense or Ministry of Foreign Affairs, have a very difficult time because, as you mentioned, the interruption of the Article 9, Paragraph 1 is very, very difficult. Even us, native Japanese, cannot understand it easily. It takes some time and we have to study it. Because uh, I guess you have some experience studying in Japanese university, Osaka University, so you may sub, you have some uh, concrete idea about the difficulty of the interpreting the, the Article 9. But when it comes to the foreign relationship or foreign affairs, uh, they, uh, they mean the defense secretary of a foreign country, they cannot understand the, the Japanese domestic legal situation. Right. So in case we have some professional dialogue with uh, foreign Navy or military personnel, as you mentioned, we have to be based upon international law. And the one thing I, I would like to insist is that uh, Japanese constitution is within the range of international use ad valorem. That's a, a very important thing. But as a matter of fact, it's, it's more restrictive than use ad valorem. Mm -hmm. yeah, right? So right. the use ad valorem would allow Japan to engage in collective self-defense. It would allow Japan to engage in collective security operations authorized by the UN Security Council. But Article 9, Paragraph 1 of the Constitution actually constrains Japan. And am I right in understanding that, for example, in the Gulf War of 1991, the Prime Minister yes. at the time, Prime yes. Minister Kaifu, uh, and indeed the majority of the Liberal Democratic Party, the governing party at the time, wanted to participate in the Gulf War, was being asked to do so by the United States, and was prepared to send the self-defense force, the Japanese military, but that the Cabinet Legislation Bureau stepped in and said, you can't do that. That would be a violation of Article 9, Paragraph 1, right? Mm. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so this is an example of the ways in which Article 9, Paragraph 1 constrained and restrained Japanese ability to engage in, for example, collective security operations. And the same, if I am correct, uh, took place in the the more recent invasion of Iraq in 2003, mm. once again, yes. Japan was not able to participate until after the invasion was over and the belligerent occupation had commenced. Right. Yeah, well, my personal understanding, this is my personal opinion, but I am not currently not representing the JMSDF. This is my strictly my uh, personal view. Right. I think that even in 1991, the Gulf War was conducted 
by authorization from the UN Security Council. Right. So that war was not based upon uh, collective or individual self-defense from the international legal point of view. But at that time, Japanese government never thought in that way. For them, any conduct of hostilities with foreign troops, they thought that this kind of operation is uh, a con- uh, the conduct of hostility which was prohibited and under the Article 9, Paragraph 1. Right. But as an international legal researcher, I myself, that understanding is not perfectly proper. Right. I have no idea about uh, uh, the, the scholars or researchers who studied, who specialize in Japanese constitutional law. They probably have the different idea. Right. But having said that, as you say, the Gulf War in 1991 was authorized by uh, UN Security Council resolution uh, and therefore authority under Article 42 of the UN Charter. As a matter of international law, Japan was entirely entitled to and authorized to participate in the Gulf War quite lawfully. But as a matter of constitutional law, Article 9, Paragraph 1 was interpreted to mean that Japan could not engage in collective security operations, even those authorized by the UN Security Council, right? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Right. So then the next, I guess, question is before we get to 2014 and the so-called reinterpretation of Article 9, what was the Japanese government's position on some of the more controversial aspects of Yusad Balam, and in particular, the doctrine of self-defense. So for example, I mean, you know as a, a scholar of international law that the International Court of Justice found in Nicaragua, for example, that there is a gap between what constitutes a use of force under Article 2.4 of the Charter and what constitutes an armed attack under Article 51, and that an armed attack is considered to be a grave form of, or the gravest form of the use of force. The United States, of course, does not accept that view. The United States says any, any use of force can constitute an armed attack, that there's no difference between the scale and effects of armed attack and use of force. What was the Japanese government's position prior to 2014 on that issue? So the first thing I would like to say is that the Japanese position for this matter had not been changed before and after 2014. Okay. So as far as I understand, the Japanese government's view about the, the notion of the armed attack is completely the same as what the ICJ stated in 1986. Because we, Japanese government, think that there's a kind of use of force by state which is not amount to the actual armed attack. Right. In such a circumstance, they call it the so-called gray zone situation. The gray zone means that there is some kind of unlawful use of force by states or uh, the group or entity other than states, such as terrorists or some kind of groups. But in such a circumstances, such, when use of force never amount to the imminent armed attack, Japanese government or Japan cannot invoke the right of collective or, or uh, individual self-defense. Okay. In, in case of gray zone, we have to take care of the situation by using the police force, okay. such like a uh, uh, coast guard or a police squad, that kind of unit. So 
for Japan, armed attack is very concrete idea. As、uh, you, I just stated, or you mentioned, the, the armed attack is the greatest form of the use of force. Okay. And so you've mentioned the, the word imminent a few times there. So that was indeed my next question. I take it that Japan, the Japanese government, has accepted the idea of anticipatory self defense,、mm. meaning that a country can use force in self defense in response to an imminent armed attack, where imminence is understood in a very strict and narrow sense. Is, is that a correct statement? Uh, well, I would like to say something about it, especially. Okay. okay. So, Japanese government probably recognized the anticipatory self defense, but they never admit the so called、uh, preemptive self defense,、right. which、uh, the US President George Bush、uh, insisted once. Right, the Bush Doctrine. Yeah, yeah. For Japan, so called anticipatory self defense is、uh, when the Armed attack is imminent. In such a circumstances, imminent means not only that there is a direct hit or a direct offensive action conducted by foreign troops, but also there is a situation which such actual attack will be anticipated in the very near future. Right. For instance, when the Chinese or North Korea is preparing for Their actual operations, then the Japanese Navy or Japanese Air Force find that、uh, there is prepared to attack Japan, so that the actual armed attack will occur pretty soon, maybe within a few days. Then Japanese government decides that there is an imminent armed attack. So that kind of situation they call the anticipated self defense, right? But not、uh, preemption, right? And so Your understanding is imminence in that context is interpreted quite narrowly, something that is、right. immediate, or even the attack is already in motion. Would that be That's correct? That's right. Okay.、Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So we'll come back to some, some more of these sort of more controversial aspects of Yusad Balam, but let's, let's dive into the so called reinterpretation of Article 9 and Whether or how that changes Japanese positions on any of these issues. So, to begin, perhaps you can just explain to us what was the so called reinterpretation in 2014, 2015. Okay, I understand that the、uh, reinterpretation means that the Japanese、uh, choose a more realistic foreign policies. The reinterpretation or greatly of the, the personal character of former. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Yeah. His dream as a politician is to change the constitution itself, but it is very, very difficult to change the constitution. So, the imputation means that、uh, the bearing in mind, bearing the situation we are facing, a, a security matter or international security situation we are facing with Prime Minister or Japanese government at that time, that it's time to Take a much more realistic political methods or foreign policy without changing the constitution itself. So, the imputation is kind of like a method to、uh, operate the、uh, laws or constitution. It's very easy or mu- much easier to change,、uh, to change the constitution itself. So, it's a matter of policy. 
And this was done through really just a cabinet decision, right? That's right. That's right. And and then through the revision of 10 national security laws and the passage of one additional national security law, which tended to implement this new so-called interpretation that had been issued by the cabinet. And I should just perhaps say that, I mean, we're more interested in uh, how this affects Japan's posture with relation to Yusad Balam. But in passing, I should note that most, in fact, the vast majority of constitutional scholars in Japan at the time issued statements saying that the reinterpretation of Article 9 was entirely illegitimate, invalid, and unconstitutional, precisely because Mm -hmm. the prime minister had circumvented the amendment procedures of the constitution and that, in fact, the substance of the reinterpretation was inconsistent with the the longstanding uh, understanding of the constitution. But in any event, we're we're more interested in the international law aspects. So let's get into the substance of the reinterpretation. How does the reinterpretation change the understanding of Article 9, Paragraph 1 in relation to the right of self-defense? The important thing is nothing has been changed at all. Really? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, okay, let's get into that. So first of all, I mean, I think it does change even the individual self-defense, right? So let's start with individual self-defense. What does the reinterpretation okay. do about individual self-defense? Well, for uh, concerning the individual self-defense, the Japanese position never changed because there was a three uh, element, new so-called new elements to invoke the right of, of self-defense. As, I, as you mentioned in your uh, article on the website, I, I, I have read all of them. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, so there's very important three elements for Japan to invoke the right of individual self-defense. First, in the case of armed attack occurs. The second, there was no alternative methods or way to repel the actual armed attack. The third is the use of force must be strictly limited within the minimum necessity. So these three elements never changed before the 2014. Right. But then with the reinterpretation, the, the cabinet decision states that individual self-defense might be allowed in response to, and I quote, an infringement that does not amount to an armed attack in situations that are neither peacetime nor contingencies. And the word contingencies is a little strange, but it's understood to mean hostilities. So that seems to be a pretty radical change, and it almost, on its face, doesn't seem to be consistent with Article 51 of the UN Charter. It almost seems to be inconsistent with USAD Balam. As far as I understand, Japanese government never allowed self-defense force to operate in the, in the situation that, uh, which there was no actual armed attack. So and I don't understand that Japan cannot invoke the individual right of self-defense in the case there is a so-called insurgencies in the remote island, right. which is conducted by a Chinese militia, for example. Right. In such a circumstances, once again, they call it a gray zone situation. Right. Not, not an armed attack situation. But they said that Japan could use force in response to that situation, which suggests that it could use force without an armed attack. Yeah, but in such a circumstances, so Japanese government does use use certain kind certain amount of force. But in such a circumstances, that force must 
be in accordance with Japanese criminal law or uh, uh, administrative law, not a use of the better. But the LDP, both in its amendment proposals in 2012 and in the cabinet decision in 2014, suggested that it could be the SDF, right? The Jietai yes. could use force in response to an infringement that does not amount to an armed attack in situations that are neither peacetime nor contingencies, so-called gray zone situations in remote islands. And I have some difficulty understanding how it could take that position when there hasn't been an armed attack. Uh, okay, you said that it's a very important point. Okay, in such a circumstances, there must be some opportunity for the JMSDF, or much commonly Japanese Navy, to operate to defend our national interests, even if there is no actual armed attack. In such a circumstances, JMSDF, okay, Japanese Navy force, can operate only under the Article 78 of the SDF law, which provides maritime security operations. Maritime security operation is, is not the conduct of hostilities or the, so there was no there was not a situation which a use in battle apply. So there is not a use ad verum situation. Well, but I guess that raises a huge question, right? So if the the Jieta, if the Japanese Navy sinks, let's say Chinese Coast Guard vessels around the Senkaku Islands, because that is an infringement that does not amount to an armed attack. Yes, yes. The Japanese government may take the position that this was governed by certain provisions of the National Defense Act or even the laws governing the Coast Guard. But as a matter of international law, that would constitute a use of force. And indeed, use in Bello would apply because this would constitute the use of force by the military of Japan against a, a state force of China. Okay, th okay, thank you for your comment, because I am very interested in how the, the people outside Japan think in that situation. But I understand that some people like you regard that this kind of situation is a, is a situation which is governed by using Bero or using Baron. But for Japan or Japanese government, this is not a using Bero situation or used, based upon using Baron. This is, this is only the police or consular operation within the Japanese domestic legal system. But it's the Japanese military that's engaging in the conduct in what is disputed waters, right? So, I mean, it may be that Japan takes the, the position that the Senkaku Islands are within Japanese territorial waters, but that is disputed. Uh, but in any event, you are engaging in the use of force against state agents of another country with the military of Japan. I mean, surely that triggers both use in bellow and use ad bellum implications, no? Well, I don't think so. Because one thing, you, you say that there is a disputed area around right. Senkaku Islands, but we, Japanese government, never think that it is, it is a disputed area. Okay, the second thing is that, okay, you're right, from, uh, for foreign people or foreign nations, Chinese Coast Guard vessel is operating in the in our territorial, territorial sea, and to repair their operations, Japanese government, only in the, if Japanese government deployed the warship, 
which mm-hmm. is belonging to the JMSF or the Japanese Navy. Right. The most probably people like you think that the Japanese government is reacting to the situation by using the warship while Chinese government deploys a Coast Guard vessel. So from this, you know, um, scene, people think that Japanese government is acting under the right of individual self-defense. Well, but it's not even individual self-defense because there hasn't been an armed attack, right? So let's let's turn it around. So imagine, okay. for example, the Chinese Navy sinks mm-hmm. a Japanese Coast Guard vessel around the Senkaku Islands. Mm-hmm. Would the Japanese government accept the Chinese argument that this was really just a police matter and that it didn't implicate use of force or use ad bellum and didn't trigger the operation of international humanitarian law because this was just a police matter in what China thinks is Chinese waters. I'm guessing the Japanese government would take a different position and say, no, this was actually an act of aggression. Uh, well, we don't think that uh, this this was not this. We don't think that this is active aggression. They are just invading our territory. Right. So, which is... <laughs> So maybe we're not we're not going to resolve this, but this is a I mean this is a really interesting uh, sort of difference in understanding of this issue as it relates to individual self defense. But of course, the biggest change in the reinterpretation of Article Nine was with respect to collective self defense, right? So yes. again, prior to 2014, just so everybody's clear, the Japanese government position had consistently been that Japan did not have a right of collective self-defense as a matter of constitutional law. It had the inherent right, of course, as a matter of international law, but it had renounced the right to engage in collective self-defense as a matter of constitutional law. All of a sudden in 2014, that changes. The Japanese government says, going forward, Japan may engage in collective self-defense, but it interprets collective self-defense very differently than the international law use ad bellum understanding of collective self-defense. So perhaps you can tell us what was the definition of collective self-defense in the reinterpretation? My understanding is that the changing is that, okay, even if constitutional law never allows to uh, exercise the, the rights of collective self-defense. So from this reason, we can say that only the, the rights of self-defense, Japan can exercise the individual self-defense. So Japan always had a right of individual self-defense. And uh, the, because under the, the Japanese constitutional law, we cannot evoke the, the right of collective self-defense. Every use of force by Japan under the constitutional law is, should be based upon the individual self-defense. For this reason, we have to explain in this way, because from the international legal point of view, even in the case we should invoke the rights of collective self-defense for Japan, in such a circumstances, the use of force should be based upon the individual self-defense. That's the reason why they, in the cabinet decision in 2014, Japanese government said that there is a survival threatening situation of Japan, not other country. As you understand, the collective self-defense should should be invoked to assist the certain nation which is a victim of armed attack by another nation. The, the very purpose, so this is the very purpose, but for Japan, because of the reason you mentioned, 
the use of force which should be conducted under the collective self-defense should be for Japan based upon individual self-defense. So in such a circumstances, we have to recognize that the certain armed attack to one nation should be the threat of survival of Japan, Japan itself. So this is the big issue, right? Yes. So the big change with the reinterpretation is the government says what used to be unconstitutional is now constitutional. So collective self-defense was not allowed under Article 9, Paragraph 1, but now it is. But here's how we're defining collective self-defense. It has to be in response to an armed attack against a country with which Japan has a close relationship. And secondly, the armed attack itself on the country with which Japan has a close relationship has to constitute a threat to the survival of Japan and to the life, liberty, and happiness of the Japanese people. Yes, yes, that's it. That's right. Now, you can interpret this two different ways, right? So, and you've, I think, just suggested that there's this, what I will call the narrow interpretation, which makes the bar, you know, the standard for Japan engaging in collective self-defense very high, which is there has to be an armed attack on a country with which Japan has close relations, and that has to threaten the survival of Japan and the rights to life, liberty, and happiness of the Japanese people, which is hard to imagine, right? I mean, that, that's a pretty weird scenario that there's an attack on another country that also threatens the survival of Japan. A different interpretation would be that you can read that, and, and I think this is true both of the English language translation and the Japanese language original. You can read that definition of collective self-defense what we would call in English disjunctively. In other words, it could be either yes. an armed attack on a country with which Japan has friendly relations or a threat to the survival of Japan and the rights of the Japanese people, in which case the bar is much lower. And here's the question. If you're looking at, again, as you said, this, is, this was the dream of Shinzo Abe was to change the constitution of Japan and he couldn't do it through legitimate means, so he tried to do it through this reinterpretation. Why would you go to all this effort to reinterpret the Constitution, an invalid, illegitimate reinterpretation of the Constitution, which caused tens of thousands of people to demonstrate in the streets of Tokyo, Osaka, and other cities to develop a definition of collective self-defense that is so limited that it will almost never be used? And the real mystery here is that when the prime minister and defense minister at the time, uh, defense minister Nakatani, are asked questions about this, they give examples that are not consistent with the narrow definition of collective self-defense, right? They say, oh, well, we could use force in the Straits of Hormuz if Iran was, was doing something to close the, the Gulf and the oil flow to Japan that would threaten the survival of Japan, so we could use force in collective self-defense. Well, that's not consistent, the narrow example of collective self-defense. So how are we to understand this? Well, my direct answer to your question is, I have no idea. But uh, <laughs> the, the, I mean, uh, the Straits of Hormuz is a very, very difficult issue to explain by using the, uh, the right of self-defense. Because I understand that uh, there in, for the Straits of Hormuz affairs, 
we have to think uh, two or three scenarios. One is very imp one important thing is that uh, collective self-defense or individual self-defense for Japan to invoke such rights, there must be a uh, imminent armed attack. So, in such a circumstances, Iran should be a belligerent country to another nations. Mm -hmm. So, Straits, as you can understand, Straits of Hormuz is consisted with the territorial waters, both Iran and Oman. So, for Iran to cross the strait, Iran should invade the territorial waters of Oman in such a circumstances. Well, of course, it depends on, but uh, my understanding is that, uh, is that in the case Iran invades uh, in territorial waters of Oman, that could amount to an armed attack to Oman. Then, in the case, Omani government requests Japan to invoke the collective right of, of self-defense, then we can do that. But without such request, we cannot do that, I guess, from an international point of view. But under the narrow interpretation, mm -hmm. first of all, Oman would yeah. have to be a country with which Japan had very close relations, which is debatable. But yes. secondly, yes. the armed attack on Oman through somehow the mining of Omani territorial waters, for example, would have to threaten the very survival of Japan and the rights to life, liberty, and happiness of the Japanese people. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to imagine how mining the territorial waters of Oman could rise to the level of being an existential threat to Japan and its people. Uh, well, I, I don't know because I have never met facing with, with that kind of situation. But uh, well, this is a very you know, interesting. So. My shipping operations could amount to uh, at least invasion of certain nations' territory waters. As you can see in the Corfu Channel case in 1949, mm -hmm. ICJ, ICJ's judgment. Right. But uh, yeah, but to to justify such uh, military operations, such uh, like my uh, shipping operations in, in another country, so we have to think two things. First is, this should be a, a legitimate of military operations under the law of the sea, the peacetime law. Mm -hmm. and on the other hand, we can conduct that kind of operations in, in the law of naval warfare, but to invoke the law of, of naval warfare, there must be the uh, international armed conflict situations. Right. Yeah, but under the, the law of the sea regime, this kind of operation is very uh, next to impossible contact legitimately, I guess. Right. That's what ICJ says in 1949. Right. So I guess, I mean, the, the point of all of this, of course, is that, you know, there are scholars in Japan, as I understand mm -hmm. it, and certainly outside of Japan, who are somewhat skeptical and suspicious of the Japanese government's explanation, right? So the reason for this very narrow definition was because the coalition partner of the government, the Komeito, party was very uh, resistant to expanding the interpretation yes, of Article it. 9 to include collective self-defense. So they gave it this very narrow interpretation, but people are very skeptical and suspicious about whether the Liberal Democratic Party really means what it says with this narrow interpretation and whether it could be interpreted much more broadly and indeed in ways that wouldn't even be consistent with Yusad Balam, right? Where Japan could invoke the right of collective self-defense where the so-called 
right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of the Japanese people were threatened. Its interests are threatened, but not by necessarily an armed attack. And as you said before, it isn't even really collective self-defense if it requires that there be an armed attack that constitutes a threat to the survival of Japan is really just another way of characterizing individual self-defense. So what would have been the point? And this is, of course, what raises, I think, the suspicions in people regarding the motives and real intent of the government, because this is just not consistent with either the amendment proposals that were tabled by the LDP in 2012, uh, or the statements of Prime Minister Abe in the margins. And so it's hard to understand how this very narrow uh, interpretation of collective self-defense uh, would operate. And so I guess to move the discussion along, I mean, we can think of collective self-defense in the context of Japan in two different ways, right? So one is where Japan is invoking the right of collective self-defense to use force with allies in response to an armed attack against some other country. Another way that collective self-defense is thought of in the context of Japan is the United States invoking collective self-defense to use force against, and typically the scenario contemplated here is against North Korea, because North Korea has fired a missile over Japan. And you know, this is the so-called bloody nose scenario where people have mooted the possibility that the United States would engage in a preemptive strike against North Korea using the excuse of a North Korean firing of missiles over Japanese territory and invoking collective self-defense in defense of Japan. And people have argued in essays that the United States could do this even without the request or even the consent of Japan based on Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. What are your views on this? Is it conceivable that the United States could engage in a use of force against North Korea in defense of Japan without Japan's consent? Uh, well, I personally think that in such a circumstances, it's quite natural to understand that the United States will definitely invoking the collective self-defense without Japanese uh, consent based upon the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, uh, Article 5. But even in such a circumstances, I guess that there is kind of, you know, an arrangement before that. But finally, uh, as far as I understand, the, the way of thinking of the U.S. Navy or U.S. military or United States government, they will eventually request Japan to admit that the uh, U.S. will exercise a collective self-defense toward North Korea. And one more thing is that uh, if I understand correctly, so the missile launch conducted by Korea over Japanese territory, the Japanese government never recognized that the mere fact that constitutes a, to an armed attack toward Japan directly. So, I mean, but this raises the question, right? If Japan doesn't consider it an armed attack. Yes. But the United States says, aha, that's an armed attack. We're going to use yes. force against North Korea to defend Japan. Yes. But Japan itself doesn't recognize that as an armed attack. That's a bit of a problem. Yeah. But uh, we can't say anything what a U.S. does. I see. So this is a matter of foreign policy. Right. So, and that really brings up a topic that's very much alive this week. My understanding is that Secretary of Defense Austin of the United States is meeting with 
his counterparts in Japan and maybe uh, Prime Minister Suga himself. And it was reported in the Financial Times today that the United States was going to be pressing Japan to make a statement in support of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And that raises the possibility that the United States is going to be requesting Japan to indicate that Japan would use force in collective self-defense of Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack on Taiwan, right? So do you think that Japan would give such a assurance and that that would be consistent with the narrow interpretation of collective self-defense in the reinterpretation? Uh, okay. Do I speak very directly? Absolutely. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> we, we have to think several points. First, for Japan, Taiwan is not a sovereign nation mm-hmm. for Japan. At least for, so this is a Japanese official view. Taiwan is a part of China. Right. Because, because we, have to, we have to take this problem very delicately. Right. Because the relationship for China or foreign affairs towards China is very, very important issue to Japanese government. Right. So in certain circumstances, I personally understand that there is no merit to fight with Chinese and uh, Beijing. Mm-hmm. So I understand that the United States probably has a, a very different position about mm-hmm. Taiwan. So even U.S. government officially recognized that Taiwan is not a sovereign nation either. But uh, but the the political or foreign affairs position is very different from the, those of the Japanese government. Right. The second point is. Because the Taiwan is not a sovereign nation for Japanese government. I guess Japanese government never thinks that in the case of the mainland China invades the Taiwan, this is not an international armed conflict. It, it is a non-international armed conflict. Fascinating. So this would yeah. not be an armed attack on a country with which Japan has close relations. So it would not satisfy even the first aspect of the definition of collective self-defense. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. You said that. Fascinating. Well, the last series of issues I wanted to return to after we've now established a little bit of how the reinterpretation may have affected Japan's posture with respect to Yusad Balam, and we haven't resolved all of the issues, but I'm wondering if it changes anything with respect to how Japan views some of the controversial aspects of Yusei Balaman. You said earlier in the conversation that it didn't. And so I I take it that you you still think that Japan is still of the view that armed attack is a grave form of use of force, that there's an anticipatory self-defense, but not preemptive self-defense, and imminence is to be interpreted in the narrowest sense. But there were a couple of other elements of the doctrine of self-defense we didn't get to. For example, the unwilling or unable doctrine. So you know that this is a a doctrine that has been invoked by the United States, Israel, United Kingdom, Australia, a number of other countries to justify the use of force against non-state actors in non-consenting states, states that are supposedly unwilling or unable to stop the armed attack of non-state actors. What's the Japanese position or, and if you know, what, what is the, in particular, what is the Japanese government's position on the unwilling or, or unable doctrine? Hmm. Okay. As far as I understand, Japanese government never officially 
issued their official view or, or official policy uh, about uh, non-willing doctrine. But and uh, I understand that in such a circumstance, uh, the, the very important thing for Japan, or especially under the, the Article 9 of the Constitution, there should be a very concrete or definite international legal basis uh, for Japan to conduct a kind of operation which is involving the certain amount of use of force. My understanding is that the best uh, legal basis for this kind of operation is the UN Security Council resolutions. I see. Leaving aside whether Japan can participate, yes. what is the Japanese position on, for example, the American use of force against non-state actors in, say, Yemen or Pakistan okay. on yeah. the basis that the country is unwilling or unable? Is, does Japan endorse and support the invocation of the unwilling or unable doctrine? Well, I think the answer will be negative because most probably Japanese government showed that they understand the U.S. position, but just they understand. They will not contribute towards that kind of operations. Right. This is my personal anticipation. But uh, even though they don't, they won't participate, do they take the position that the American operation is legal? Or do they think that this unwilling or unable doctrine is not consistent with USAID balance? Well, based upon the Japanese position or, or relationship between U.S., there is no choice for Japanese government that the U.S. is conducting illegal operations. The just only thing they can say is that we understand how U.S. thinks. Right. So they're not going to say it's unlawful, but they don't necessarily think that it is lawful. Yeah. They will make no comments at the time, I guess. Interesting. So one last question I had, one last question about the reinterpretation is that, as you know, there were two advisory panels, or really there was one advisory panel. It produced two reports, one in 2008, one in 2014. And this was an advisory panel that was established by Prime Minister Abe to make recommendations about either the amendment or the reinterpretation of Article 9. And so with the controversy about how to understand the reinterpretation and what legitimacy it has, in your view, should the recommendations, the report of the advisory panel, the so-called Yanai reports, be considered? Does that inform our understanding of the reinterpretation? Or should we just ignore the advisory committee's reports? If only if I have some opportunity to write essays or article which is concerned the problem you mentioned, most probably, or definitely, I will quote the report. Right. But will it yeah. change the way you understand the reinterpretation? Yeah. Yeah. In such a circumstance, I do. You will. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, listen, we've been almost an hour. So before I let you go, as you know, I'm going to ask you to recommend some reading that you think our listeners would find interesting and might help them understand. I mean, it doesn't have to be about uh, Japan, of course, but help them understand these kinds of issues. Okay. Uh, actually, last night, I was trying so hard to find <laughs> books. <laughs> and uh, 
Well, actually, as you can recognize, there are plenty of books who is dealing with use ad bellum in international law, but probably our listeners are familiar with that kind of book. So today, I would like to recommend one book which is published very recently. Uh-huh. This uh, book is about Japan and the Japanese military. Mm-hmm. Or the, the author of the book is Sheila Smith. Oh, Sheila Smith. That's right. From uh, Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah, that, that's it. That's it, that it. The title of the book is Japan Rearmed, The Politics of Military Power, which is published from Harvard University Press in 2019. This book is well written and comprehensive overview of post-war Japan's security evolution and uh, the force building. This book also traces the interplay of Japan's military heritage from the imperial days to the current days under the, the, the new constitution. And also Japanese foreign and military policies, national sentiment, and uh, the threat which Japanese perceives or, and alliance with the United States or foreign policies. And most importantly, this book is dealing with the formation and the development of, the, of our self-defense forces. So this is not international law book. This, mm-hmm. this is probably a, a political science or an international relationship, but it's, this book is highly recommended because this is the, the very interesting book. I have read it mm-hmm. and uh, written in English. English is good for you, I guess. Right. Okay, well, Yoshida-sensei, thank you so much for your time tonight. This was was wonderful. You've given us a lot of uh, food for thought and a lot of really interesting insights into the Japanese position on Yusad Balam. So thank you very much again. Well, thank you very much again. I'm awfully sorry of my poor English, but uh, please keep in touch. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Be sure to tune in next time for a conversation with Professor Srinivas Ibura of South Asian University in New Delhi, India, for a fascinating discussion of recent shifts in India's posture on the doctrine of self-defense. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at JibJadPodcast for updates on coming episodes and other commentary. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care and stay safe.